0: If you have your Bibles, please open with me to John chapter 6. That's where we will uh, resume our study of John's Gospel. Uh, it's been a, a wonderful uh, study uh, thus far. And uh, as you are turning there, uh, J.C. Ryle, a great uh, 19th century pastor uh, in England, uh, has a little booklet entitled "Simplicity." in preaching and it's been a very impactful book uh, for me uh, and in that little booklet he says this he says for one thing i ask all my readers to remember that to attain simplicity in preaching is of the utmost importance to every minister who wishes to be useful to souls he says, unless you are simple in your sermons you will never be understood and unless you are understood, you cannot do good to those who hear you. Uh, and, and those are great words of advice to any preacher, really to any uh, person who is uh, teaching anyone else. You always want to, to keep it simple and to move from things that are known to things that are unknown. But what I find to be truly amazing is that the greatest preacher who ever lived completely disregarded J.C. Ryle's uh, lesson here. Uh, the greatest preacher who ever lived, the, the master teacher, is Jesus Christ himself. And there are times in his ministry that Jesus is not just simple, but complex uh, and difficult and outright confusing, right? Uh, and uh, what's amazing is, is that there... Uh, in Scripture, we see that he did this at times intentionally. This is the reason that he spoke in parables. In in Mark chapter 4, after the Jewish leadership rejected Jesus, uh, and they, they rejected him as their king, Jesus began to speak in parables. And, and as he began to speak in parables, the disciples come and they have questions. They are confused and they're like... Hey, so Jesus, what do your parables mean? Explain this to us. We're not understanding. And Jesus says this to them in Mark chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he said to them, his disciples, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything uh, is in parables. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And so Jesus spoke in parables specifically to hide uh, truth, to to cover it, to veil it uh, for those who, who would not believe it, and to unveil it for those uh, who would believe it and who would receive it. And that is what we see here uh, in uh, John chapter 6. Jesus isn't speaking particularly in uh, a parable, uh, but uh, what he is going to say here in John chapter 6 is going to prompt a whole lot of confusion. Throughout church history, and it's, uh, this uh, passage that we're going to look at today has actually, uh, been misunderstood for, for centuries in, in what is taught by, uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And, and we'll get to that, uh, in, in a little bit, but, uh, this isn't a true parable in the classical sense, but, but this is Jesus veiling truth to some and unveiling it to others. Uh, and uh, as we return to John 6 this morning, uh, we're in the middle of what we have said before, in the middle of the Bread of Life discourse. And this discourse comes the day after Jesus fed 5,000 people uh, alongside the Sea of Galilee. And and many of those who are hearing Jesus speak now in the synagogue in Capernaum, a little town uh, on the, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee... Uh, and many of those who are listening to him now were there with him the previous day, you know, and they saw him feed this mass of people. It's, it's known as the, the feeding of the 5,000, but it was more likely the feeding of 20,000, uh, because the 5,000 only includes those men who were there, but not the women and the children. And so Jesus is, is speaking some hard truths to this crowd, to these people, the Jewish leaders uh, and the Jewish people in the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, and all of this is going to build uh, to the response of the people, to the response of many of Jesus' disciples uh, at this point in time. If you look with me at John chapter 6, verse 60, after Jesus kind of wraps up his discourse... This is the response. And this is not the response that you typically want as a, a teacher, as a preacher. I wouldn't want all of you to, to come listen to me speak, and then ha- the majority of you, all of you but 12, and you're like, that guy is saying some hard stuff. I can't accept that. But that's that's what happens. Look with me at verse 60. That When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And it, verse 61 says, they were grumbling among themselves. And Jesus calls them out on it. And many of the disciples end up leaving and parting ways from following after this man they had followed for uh, months and possibly years at this point in time. And two weeks ago, uh, we looked at verses 41 to 46, and as we looked at that passage, we saw uh, some hard truths. Jesus is getting down to... The nitty-gritty in this bread of life discourse and the hard truth to accept that we saw two weeks ago was that, that the heavenly origin of Jesus is a hard truth to accept that the fact that that Jesus is more than just a man that he has a, a divine origin that he is the son of God sent from heaven. That that's hard for people to believe and to accept and the second hard truth we looked at in that passage uh, is the divine initiative in salvation That's another hard truth, that it is God who works to save us. We don't save ourselves with the help of God. God works and intervenes in our life and draws us to himself through Jesus. And as we look this morning uh, at a larger portion of Scripture, we're going to look at verses 47 all the way through verse 59. We're going to see two more truths that, that are going to be stumbling blocks. Uh, They are going to be hard truths to accept, both to uh, ancient people and modern people. Uh, They're going to be uh, truths that oftentimes when people encounter them, we we, we see people fall away and say, well, I'm not not going to follow Jesus if this is what He is saying. Things that people are unwilling to accept is what we're going to see this morning, but even though many are unwilling to accept these, even though these are hard truths, we, we must still accept them because they are true. Uh, we must build our life upon uh, what we know to be truth. Now, truth is what must be the foundation of our lives. To, to build our lives upon misunderstanding or lies or falsehood is going to lead to collapse. Uh, And and that's usually what happens. You know how we usually find out that we've built our life upon a lie or something that is false? We usually figure that out when the ground crumbles beneath us. Uh, And and we realize, hey, what I'm doing isn't working out. uh, And something needs to change. And oftentimes we don't know what needs to change. We just feel uh, our life being shaken. Uh, And so... Because we don't want that, we we want to understand who Jesus is and what he is proclaiming uh, about himself, what he has done, and our response. And all of that is going to be woven in this morning. And these are going to be the the hard truths that we need to build our life upon. There's going to be two of them this morning, and, and the first is going to be seen in verse 47 through 52. And we can... Call this the the sacrificial mission of Jesus is a hard truth to accept. The sacrificial mission of Jesus is a hard truth to accept. Look with me at verses 47 to 52. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Which is a good good question right that 's the the natural conclusion that they came to of what is he talking about how can this be what he is saying and what does he mean by this and in the past I have mentioned that that as jesus teaches he he likes to to teach in a unique way that he'll he'll give a A concept uh, and he'll state it and then a little bit later he'll repeat what he has said and he'll add a little something new. He'll take off another layer to it and he teaches in a repetitive uh, way and, and you students, what's the key to learning? repetition. There we go. Uh, and so Jesus understands that and he teaches layer by layer, but he goes one layer deeper each time and repeat, He repeats what he has said in the past. And that's what he's doing here. Uh, and he's going to remove another layer uh, for us and he's going to unveil additional truth. And he begins uh, this section uh, with, with a solemn declaration. Whenever you You see Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you, you know it's going to be something important. Because he's prefacing it saying, hey, this is serious. This is a solemn declaration. Make note of this. Hear what I'm about to say. Truly, truly, I say to you. And then he repeats what he has already said. that, That he is the bread of life. That whoever believes in him has eternal life. That's exactly what he said back in verse 35. Then in verses 49 and 50, he again points back to the experience of Israel in in the first generation, that they ate the bread, they ate the manna that came down from heaven, but they ate that bread, and to show that that bread didn't ultimately provide what they needed, it was good for physical nourishment, but it wasn't good in bringing about any type of spiritual life. He says they ate the bread, and then what happened to them? They they died in the wilderness, and that's to be contrasted with the bread that gives eternal life, the bread that has come down from heaven, and all of that that Jesus says in, in these first verses has been said before in this very sermon in this discourse that jesus is giving in this synagogue but but verse 51 is the key verse in this section where where jesus takes off that additional layer and he goes a little bit deeper and he declares that he is the living bread who's come down from heaven but he's come down with a mission with a a purpose to save sinners that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and He has come to save. If anyone eats this bread that has come down, he will live forever. But it's this final statement in verse 51 that is the major stumbling block to the Jewish people that He is speaking to. And, And this is what He says, And the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now again, that would have got their attention and kind of probably screwed up some faces of, what? Huh? There's probably some head scratching going on in the synagogue after Jesus says that. And he declares that he is going to give himself. That he is going to be the bread that is given for the life of the world. And what should immediately come to mind is a passage that that Megan read, Isaiah 53. Uh, the, the truth that we just sang. Uh, the, the suffering servant, that the servant of God, the servant of the Lord would come and he would be the sacrifice for his people. And this should immediately come to mind also because uh, just a few verses, what we looked at a couple of weeks ago in, in verse 45, John quoted Isaiah 54. Uh, and, and so all, that whole context should be in the minds of the people. And then elsewhere in Isaiah, Isaiah 49 verse 6, It's seen that the Messiah is going to be a light. He's going to be salvation, not just to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles. Uh, And uh, that verse in Isaiah says, It is is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And, uh, and that is what Jesus is saying here, that, that he has come uh, to give life to th- the world. But what's shocking for, for the, the Jewish hearers is that he's going to give himself. It's one thing for the Messiah to come and say, hey, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm going to come and I'm going to save and I'm going to rescue. I'm going to give life to everyone. Uh, and the Jews would say, hey, that's what we're expecting. But then he says, no, I'm going to give myself. There is going to be a sacrifice involved. And that's where it would have been a stumbling block to them. Now, Jesus has come on a sacrificial mission to save sinners. This reminds me of a particular operation back in in World War II. Uh, On April 18, 1942, there were 16 B-25 bombers that were launched from an aircraft carrier, the USS Hornet, uh, in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and each one of those 16 bombers had a crew of five men, and those those bombers were going on a really a one-way mission. They were they were going on a, a sacrificial mission uh, to go and attack the, the main islands of Japan. This is known as the Tokyo Raid or the the Doolittle Raid uh, because of its leader Jimmy Doolittle. And, and the plan was for these 16 planes to take off from the aircraft carrier and to fly and to to hit military targets in the the main Japanese islands. But there was no plan, no ability for them to be able to turn back and land on the aircraft carrier that they were taking off from. This was, this was a one-way sacrificial mission with a high likelihood that they were either going to be shot down or that they were going to be captured by the Japanese. But Because the plan was for them to fly over Japan and then land uh, in China. But guess who had uh, conquered it and was in ruling over China at that point in time? The Japanese. Uh, and so this was a, a, a one-way mission uh, that was ultimately successful, not because it... Uh, It destroyed a whole bunch of military targets but because it boosted American morale after uh, the surprise attack of of Pearl Harbor just five months prior to this but it was also successful in that it it was a huge had a huge unnerving effect upon the Japanese the Japanese thought they were safe and secure across the Pacific uh, and that they would uh, be safe simply because of distance uh, and the fact that they were able to be attacked on their homeland led them to realize they weren't nearly as safe as they had previously believed. And ultimately, uh, all of the aircraft that, that left on this mission were lost. Uh, and the leader of it, Jimmy Doolittle, he thought because all of the aircraft were were destroyed, he thought he was going to be court-martialed. He thought he was going uh, to be in major trouble. But he ended up getting a promotion uh, of two ranks to Brigadier General and and it was this one-way sacrificial attack that was a success. And it's similar to the mission of Jesus. That he came knowing that this was going to cost him. That his mission was a sacrificial mission. He came to give his life. And and that was a stumbling block to everybody who heard it. Uh, And this is evidenced by uh, the quarreling of the Jews in verse 52. It says that there was a a dispute among themselves, and the word for dispute there is a very strong word. Uh, It means that uh, to engage in a heated dispute without weapons, but it's close to to moving on to weapons is the idea. Uh, It's a a violent disagreement. And, And this was a dispute among them because they're saying, how can the Messiah come... And sacrifice himself. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to conquer. Again, the Jews had uh, a wish and a desire for the Messiah to come and save them from the Romans. Uh, But that is not what Jesus is saying he's going to do. He says, hey, he's going to come and he's going to sacrifice himself. And the Jews would have understood that he was speaking figuratively. They would have understood that he's not saying, hey, I've come to save the world. Here, just take a slice of me and eat and everything will be great. they're, They're not understanding him in that way. It would have been shocking language to them, but they're understanding he's speaking figuratively. But the dispute is, what in the world is he saying? How can he give himself for the life of the world? What does this mean? And again, this would have been absolutely a stumbling block, not only to those who are not believing in Jesus, but to those who who were believing in Him. We, we see this in, in Matthew 16, when, when right after Jesus asks His disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? And, and Peter gives this really famous confession of, of faith, of you are the Son of God, the living one, and you, you are the Christ. And right after that, Jesus says, "Okay, I'm glad that you understand that now from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus says, "Okay, as soon as you understand that that I am the Messiah, now I'm going to I'm going to show you this next layer. That the Messiah is going to be sacrificed. That the, the Messiah is going to be killed for sinners. And, and Peter couldn't believe this. None of the disciples could. And Peter actually took him aside. This is what it says in Matthew 16, verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Peter is so convinced this can't happen, he begins to rebuke Jesus. He says, Jesus, this can't happen. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But then he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And the disciples, just—they just, they couldn't believe that Jesus, after coming and, and saying, I'm the Messiah, that he's now going to give himself over and sacrifice himself. And, and our world really still rejects the sacrificial nature of Jesus' mission. Uh, they, they still reject the fact that the Son of God came as a sacrifice to save sinful humanity. And that is a, a, a stumbling block today. But this is everywhere in Scripture, even just a little bit earlier in John's Gospel. When John the Baptist is introducing his disciples to Jesus, what does he say? He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, Christ is our Passover Lamb he who has been sacrificed. Uh, and again, what we read earlier today in our scripture reading, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 for for the word of the cross, the, the message that the Messiah of Israel has been sacrificed to save sinners, that message is foolishness. It's, it's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so what we see here is that we have to look to Jesus as the bread of life. We have to look to him and understand that we get our spiritual sustenance from him. We have to look to him as the one who can give us life. But we also have to look to him as our sacrifice, uh, as the one whose blood was shed on our behalf, who died, who gave himself to bring life to the world. And that was the, the stumbling block here in the synagogue. And, and that is a, a hard message to accept. Again, it, it's the heart of the gospel. That, that sinners need to look to Jesus in order to be saved. Uh, and again, the, the, if you were, you're here this morning and that's a, a new message to you, you're, you're unfamiliar with that concept of that you need to be saved. And salvation doesn't uh, occur or transpire just from what is inside of you. That, that's what our modern world says. There's something wrong in the answer and the power to change is within you. What the Bible says, what the gospel says, is there is something wrong, but the power to change is outside of you. Salvation is not found inside of you. It's found outside of you. It's found in Jesus Christ. And we must look to him in faith, acknowledging that we cannot save ourselves, but that we must be dependent upon him and his sacrifice to be forgiven, to be reconciled with the holy God that we have sinned against. And if you're you're here today and that's a new message, I would uh, just ask and, and pray that you would look to Christ in faith, no longer trusting in yourself, but looking wholly and completely to Him for His righteousness and for your forgiveness. Jesus came as a sacrifice for sin on behalf of sinners. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And that that truth, as Jesus unfolds that here in the synagogue, that, that's the first stumbling block that we see. That's uh, the first thing that the Jews begin to be upset about. It's a hard truth to accept. But then there's a second hard truth in in verses fifty-three to fifty-nine. Which would be this that the exclusive nature of salvation. The exclusive nature of salvation is a hard truth. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And so, again, Jesus responds to the, the quarreling of the Jews and again affirms what he's going to say. Truly, truly, I say to you. And then he, he gives a very simple statement, but it's, a, it's an inviolable principle. He says, unless one thing happens, a second thing will not happen. He gives this this hypothetical. And then the first thing is this, in verse 53. Unless you all, it's a plural there, unless you all eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and you all drink His blood. There, there's the condition. Unless this happens, the second thing can't happen, which is that you all, again, a plural, y'all do not have life in yourselves. Right? I went southern there. Y'all. uh uh-huh. But, but it's helpful to, to see that. And this is what Jesus is saying. Apart from eating his flesh and drinking his blood, no one has spiritual life. No one has eternal life. And you're like, great, I understand that. But what does that mean? Right? And, and, and that, that's the confusing part of this passage. right? This is where Jesus has veiled truth and also unveiled truth at the same time. He said some confusing things, and we we have to to try and understand it. And it is this passage that has led Roman Catholics to interpret uh, and to to come to the conclusion that when they celebrate communion, when they partake of that, uh, the the bread and the cup, uh, that something happens to that bread and the cup, that when the priest gives it to uh, an individual, it literally becomes... The flesh of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. So they literally think that whenever communion is partaken of in the Roman Catholic Church, that Jesus is sacrificed again for the sins of that individual. Uh, the re-sacrifice of Jesus, and it literally becomes that. Now, we don't believe that, and we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll return to this passage when we celebrate communion together in a couple weeks. Uh, and I'll talk about that some more. But, but that is not what is being said here. And, and we know this by looking at the very next verse. Look with me at verse 54. Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, and if we were sitting there in the synagogue, this would immediately remind us of what Jesus had said just a few moments earlier back in verse 40. Once you go back and look at verse 40, because Jesus said something almost identical to what he says in verse 54. In verse 40, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the, the same idea of what is said in verse 54. The only thing that's been replaced is looking and believing has been replaced with eating the flesh and drinking the blood. And so uh, this is uh, the idea of, uh, this, is, this is Hebrew logic here. Oftentimes if you, if you read Proverbs in Hebrew poetry, uh, the, the, the Jews don't rhyme with words like we do. They rhyme with ideas. They throw two ideas alongside one another uh, and, and draw parallels and connections between them. And, and Jesus is is connecting here that eating and, and drinking is actually looking and believing, looking carefully uh, and believing. It's a rhyming of ideas. Uh, and that is what is being said here. Uh, to to consume his flesh and his blood is to appropriate uh, him in faith to to trust in him to to take Jesus into your innermost being that, that is what he is saying and uh, the great church father Augustine summed up this truth with a famous phrase in Latin which translated says believe and you have eaten uh, that is what he. He says, and if you think about it, the act of eating and drinking is an act of faith because you are uh, acting and believing that what you are going to consume, what you are putting into your body is not poisonous. Okay, Now, we have all come across something in the refrigerator at one point or another, and it is a, a little bit sketchy, right? You're not quite sure. It's like, okay, the, the expiration date was like... This past week, but it, it might be okay. And, and what do we, the typical thing that we do, we open it or screw the cap off. Usually it's milk, right? Uh, and, we, and we do the little sniff test, right? But then what do we do if we're not sure? Usually we ask mom or uh, or the, the wife and say, hey, what do you think about this, right? That's like guys can't make that type of decision. Like, I can't willingly throw away food. Come on. Uh, if, if it's edible, I'm going to consume it. Uh, and so that, that's the idea. But we don't want to consume it if it's bad. Because, again, that act of consumption is an act of faith. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That those are the connections that he is drawing. That that to, to consume him, to eat his flesh and to drink his blood is an act of faith. You are appropriating him. You're taking him into your being. And Jesus is, is teaching along the lines of this metaphor to veil the truth to those who are not really going to accept it and to reveal the truth to those who will. Uh, This is a a spiritual picture of what Jesus provides to his people. In the same way that, that earthly food is required by your physical body, your spirit, if it's going to have life, requires Jesus. It requires the bread of life if you are going to survive spiritually. In the same way that you cannot live without food and water here on the earth, you cannot have eternal life, spiritual life, apart from Christ. So Jesus says this in, in verses 53 and 54. And then verse 55 continues this imagery. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He is what we need. And verse 56 uh, is going to echo verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So there's a, another echo. Uh, verse 56 echoes verse 54. But again, one thing is changed, right? That uh, having eternal life is replaced with remaining or abiding in Jesus. And that's, again, uh, it helps us to define what eternal life is. Uh, eternal life is, is to be uh, united with Christ and to remain in him and with him and he in us. Uh, that That is what is... Uh, taught here by jesus then verse 57 is then an explanation of why we must eat why we must consume jesus because god the father uh the living god the living father has given life to the son which this is really just an echo of john five but we won't go back there Uh, and and because the Son has life through the Father, and the Son gives life to whomever He wishes, uh, in essence, Jesus is the, the mediator of everyone who has life, that we live because uh, Jesus gives us the life of the Father. And then verse 57 is just a summary of verses 53 through 57, or verse 58 is another summary. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Again, yeah, not like what the fathers ate and they died, But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And if if you eat uh, and believe and trust in Jesus, you will have eternal life. And this doesn't mean that you'll never die. but, But the idea is, again, that you will be raised up on the last day, what is said in verse 54. And Jesus says all of this in the synagogue to the leaders and to the people. And this would have been absolutely scandalous. Because you didn't just, you didn't talk about those types of things. Jews weren't supposed to, to to eat and consume blood. That's very clear in the Old Testament. And here, uh, this rabbi, this teacher, is in the synagogue and saying, we we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Uh, This is absolutely taboo. And and all of this would have been scandalous, but even more scandalous than just talking about the consumption of blood would have been the fact that Jesus is saying the only way for these people and really all people to have spiritual life is through Him. Jesus is making an exclusive claim here. Again, going back to verse 53. Unless you eat and you drink, you will not have life. It's an impossibility. Jesus is is claiming the exclusivity for salvation here, the exclusivity for eternal life. And that's not just scandalous in the first century, that's, that's scandalous now. And if you were to, to have to identify one particular thing about Christianity that, that was a stumbling block to our, our modern sensibilities, this would probably be it, right? Uh, in the 21st century American culture, we, we have moved beyond the idea of a singular truth. Uh, We have moved beyond that, and everyone can have conflicting ideas and still be right. Uh, Everybody can have their own truth. We want to say that all religions are equal, all, all go to the same place, the same God. It's a very uh famous uh ancient Hindu parable that's been adopted by a whole bunch of secular college professors to try and teach uh the the limitations of, of human knowledge to incoming college students. And this this parable goes like this. It's a parable of blind a group of blind men uh trying to figure out and describe an elephant that they are touching. Okay? Uh, and each of the blind men is, is touching a different part of the elephant There's one blind man up in, in the front And he's touching the, the trunk of the elephant And he's like, oh, this is like a snake uh, And then uh, there's another blind man who's touching the elephant's ear He's like, no, it's like a fan now another bl- blind man is, is touching the, the elephant's leg. And he says, no, it's like a tree trunk. And then someone else is uh, on the, the elephant's side. And like, no, it's like a wall. And then someone else is, is playing with the tail. No, it's like a rope. Uh, and then someone else is in the front and touching the, the tusk of the elephant. He says, no, it's like a spear. Uh, and the point, again, is that, that all human religions are like that. They're trying to describe God. That we're really just blind men trying to explain what we don't understand. And and the, the point of it is to try and say that all human religions have some truth, but not all of the truth. That we know a little bits and pieces about who God is, but we can't speak definitively about who God really is. But there's a couple problems with this parable. Number one, it assumes that there is someone who can see the narrator. And whenever you use this parable, you're saying, really, I know what God looks like and I know I can see the blind men. And I can see the limitations of their knowledge, but nobody can do that. We are all blind. Okay. second way wrong uh, thing with this is that it assumes that the elephant can't speak. It assumes that the elephant isn't able to say uh, what he is like, and he's unable to describe himself to us. Because what if uh, this elephant uh, is able to, to speak to the blind men and say, actually, no, that's just my trunk. Uh, it's not, not a snake. No, that's just my tail. That's my side. That's my leg. Well, what if the elephant is able to describe with clarity and with accuracy what he is like to the blind men? That changes everything, right? Then, then they're no longer dependent upon their own sight, but they're dependent upon the, the one who is speaking to them. And if you turn with me over to Acts chapter 17, you see that Paul addresses this very idea. He, he's speaking to a, a group of philosophers in the city of Athens, right? Uh, and, and philosophy uh, to the Greeks uh, w- was what they loved. They loved to hear new things, right? We see that actually uh, in verse 21. In Acts chapter 17, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They, they, they love to, to talk about ideas uh, and to converse about ideas and really not land on any one of the ideas. They, again, they can all be true. So Paul, verse 22 in Acts chapter 17, Standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Man of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And then verse 32, that was at the resurrection of the dead. They said, okay, we've heard enough. And, uh, there are many truths to the Christian faith that are stumbling blocks. If I go, people will say, no, I can't believe that. And the resurrection is one of them, but that's not for today. But what we see here is Paul saying, yeah, we are all blind men. We are all fumbling around in the dark trying to comprehend and figure out who God is. But God has now revealed Himself and spoken through His Word and through His Son. If you, if you turn back to the Gospel of John, to the very beginning, what we looked at at the very beginning of our study, John chapter 1. We're introduced to the Word. Verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. if you jump down to verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. But He, speaking of the Word, He has made Him known. The idea that that Jesus is the one who reveals God to us. Jesus is the one who helps us to know who God is. He's the, the one who speaks. He's the one who describes an invisible being and perfectly images Him. The, the, the verb tense there in the Greek is the idea of that Jesus exegetes God for us there in one eighteen. Now, And that is what we, we have to understand and realize. And that's what Jesus is saying here, that we, we are all blind men unable to understand who God is. But God has spoken in his word and in his son. And Jesus is the only one who can make God known to us. There's an exclusive claim here that, again, most times the world rejects. Jesus is the one who makes God known. He is the one who has declared, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And He's the one here. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and then He declared, unless we eat His flesh lest we believe and trust in him we cannot have eternal life we have no life in ourselves again this exclusivity of christ is a hard truth to accept but it's a truth that we have to stand for because it is true because this is what christ has declared uh there was a an interview uh between uh, Neil uh, deGrasse Tyson. Anyone know who that is? Very famous physicist, one of the most prominent atheists uh, in the world right now. And he's doing an interview with Stephen Colbert. uh, And Neil deGrasse Tyson says, the good thing about science is that it's true whether or not you believe in it. But but that's really not a statement about science. It's a statement about truth, right? Uh, Because science is often wrong. Every single generation in human history, what have they believed about their science? That it was right. But then every subsequent generation, what do we see? Their science was wrong and fallible and incomplete. Uh, and what we need to see is that uh, science is often wrong, but the truth is always true. Uh, and the truth about God is what we need to build our life upon. Uh, and the truth about God is true whether people believe it or not. Truth is always that way. And, and what we have to, to remember and keep in mind is, is oftentimes we are embarrassed by this concept of the exclusivity of Christ, right? And, and why does that strike fear in our heart to speak about the exclusivity of Christ? If we say that there is only one way, what does that mean about the, the thoughts and the opinions of the one that we are speaking to and with? What does it mean? For saying that Jesus is the one way, and they believe something other than Jesus, well, then the implication is that they're wrong, and it, it, it's it's scary to say that to somebody, right? It, it's intimidating, and sometimes it can be embarrassing to, to say, "Well, I believe that there is only one way." But 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 if we are really serious about believing what Jesus has said, and if we genuinely love other people, if there's only one way. What do we need to do? Well, we need to say something. We we need to speak out of love and out of conviction for the hearts and minds and, and the lives of others. And we must graciously and compassionately speak of the exclusivity of Christ, because that is exactly what Jesus himself proclaimed in love. That he is the light who has come into the world of blind men living in the darkness. And we have to trust in Him. And out of love for our neighbors, out of love for others, we must go to those around us. Now, our, our friends, our family members, neighbors, co-workers. And we must speak to them about Jesus. And we must not shrink back from saying that Jesus is the only way. We cannot shrink back from the exclusivity of Christ, even though it is a hard truth to accept. You know, the, the, the truths that we have seen this morning and... Two weeks ago, these are the, the primary reasons that people reject Christ. The primary reason that, that people walk away from Him. And they, they cannot accept that He is the Son of God who's come down from heaven. And they cannot accept that, that God must act to save us. The, people reject the idea that we are not in control of our own salvation. And people cannot accept that, that Jesus came with a sacrificial mission. That he came to save sinners because they could not save themselves. And that we need to be saved through a righteous sacrifice. And people cannot accept the exclusive nature of Christ's claims. These are all hard truths. But these are all truths that are at the heart of the gospel. If you take any one of them away... You have a different gospel. You have a different faith. If Jesus isn't the Son of God come down from heaven, we are in trouble. Salvation is not by grace through faith in Christ. We're in trouble. Salvation is a gift from God. It's not something that we earn or perform for. And Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to save sinners, to be our sacrifice. And Jesus is the only way to be reconciled with God. He is not a way. He is not one way out of many. He is the way. He is the only Savior. And again, while these truths are stumbling blocks to those who do not believe, they are precious, precious truths to those who do believe. Yeah, I love that verse. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Now, and in those moments when we are nervous, when we are embarrassed, when we're in a conversation with someone uh, and, and the exclusivity of Christ comes up, are you saying that Jesus is the only way and that anybody who has not believed in Jesus is condemned and they're separated from God? Yeah, that, that, that is what Scripture teaches. That, that is what Scripture proclaims. Here's the here's the key thing to keep in mind. What has Christ done in your life? Because because in those moments we we are most worried about what other people will think. But we need to remember what has Christ done to transform me. Why are we so sure? That Christ is the only way. I know because this is what Christ has proclaimed. And I've seen everything that Jesus has said to be true played out in my life. I have seen him transform. I've seen him save. And so again, these truths that are stumbling blocks to others are so precious to us. This is the power of the gospel. And my prayer would be that, that we reflect upon these hard truths to accept That we accept them because they are true. And then we turn around and we praise God for the truth of the gospel. Because that's what we have been looking at and talking about these last couple of weeks.